How long, uh, how long did you boys say it was going to take you to get down there? Uh, about two or three days. Two or three days, is that right? Boy, I sure wish I was going with you. Yeah? You got a helmet? Oh. Oh, I've got a helmet. <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast. I'm Rick. I'm Julia. And today we are watching 1969's Easy Rider, written and directed by Dennis Hopper, also written by Peter Fonda and Terry Southern. The movie stars Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Jack Nicholson. And we are watching this movie for Dennis Hopper. Did they write a movie just so they could star in it? I am willing to bet that Dennis Hopper got this idea, called up his friend Peter Fonda, and they hit the road. This has, from the trailer, a very guerrilla filmmaking feel to it. It does. Very casual. Like the trailer said, going out and finding America. It sounds like that's exactly what they did to make this movie. Mm-hmm. We just recently watched The Unbearable Weight of Immense Talent. Yes. Whatever that movie is called. With Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage. By the end of the movie, they make a movie just like as buddies. So I'm kind of... Imagining a bit of a parallel there. Yeah. I know nothing about Peter Fonda. Of course, I recognize the name as Jane Fonda's father. He is the brother of Jane Fonda. Okay, brother to Jane Fonda. So I recognize Bridget. I recognize the name, of course, but I don't think I've seen him in anything ever. I know nothing about him at all. I didn't even recognize the face. I also did not recognize the face of Dennis Hopper. Well, it's because there's all the hair on it. Yeah, he's got lots of hair all over there. But his voice definitely stood out as, okay, I hear Dennis Hopper in the voice. I've never seen this movie. Have you before? Uh, No, I know nothing about this movie. I know it by reputation as a sort of countercultural filmmaking. You definitely get the sense from some trailers for this movie that Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper's characters are seen as hippies, and the more conservative people they run into reject them just by sight, and these men are just going off and being nomads. I did get a skosh of free love vibe. Yeah, well, it is 1969. Yeah, so I expect there to be some of that attitude in the movie. Yeah, I imagine that any sort of countercultural activity that we see in this movie may or may not be a little autobiographical on Dennis Hopper's part. He does, from his history, strike me as the kind of guy that if he can do drugs on camera, he's just going to do that. Okay. I have zero expectations of this movie. I'm very excited by the fact that it is one hour, 35 minutes. Ooh, yeah. It is a tight 95. Whether or not it's going to feel like a tight 95 is definitely to be seen. I definitely agree with that anticipation. The trailer made it look like a bit of a laid-back, chill kind of movie. And while those kind of movies certainly have their place in media culture, they tend to feel longer. If there's no driving plot pushing us forward relentlessly, it can be harder to get swept up in it. I doubt that this is going to be as driving as something like Road Warrior was. I'm very interested to see if the characters that 
Fonda and Hopper portray are going to be able to capture my interest and hold my interest for this 95 minutes. Yeah. I am yeah. excited to see a super young Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. I've always loved seeing young Jack Nicholson. Yeah. You get so used to seeing him as his older, I don't know if doughy is the right word uh, for it. Perhaps. I do think that Jack Nicholson really came into his own fame-wise. Older rather than younger. Well, he's always looked a bit old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited to see him young. By the time he hit The Shining, he was already well into his adulthood. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. things like Easy Rider and Chinatown and whatnot, they're the younger Jack Nicholson roles. So it'll be nice to see him here. But that's about all I have to say about it. Like you said, I'm not coming into this with a lot of expectations, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, just hoping to have a good time. Listeners, you know the deal. I'm going to play the trailer for this movie. You can all listen to it. It's got that nice late 60s style trailer where you've got the narrator and just a bunch of quality 60s audio recording. (laughs) So have fun with that. We'll be right back. This year, the judges of the Cannes Film Festival presented the award Best Film by a New Director to Easy Rider. It's the story of a man who went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. Easy Rider stars Peter Fonda. You do your own thing in your own time. You should be proud. Also starring Dennis Hopper, the award-winning director of Easy Rider. Co-starring Jack Nicholson. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, then? That's what it's all about. Easy Rider. And we're back. Julia, what are your initial thoughts on the tale of this movie? Frankly, my initial thoughts are speechlessness. <laughs> the end of the movie is very abrupt. It's and quite is shocking. A, a dramatic subject matter, but done in not exactly a dramatic way. It's a bit understated, the ending. So you and I sitting in the living room didn't, we just sat there at, with the blank TV for like a minute because we didn't really know what to say or like, to do well there were no real end credits to this movie no the credits were in the beginning yeah so once the story was over you got cast in order of appearance and then the soundtrack and then it cut to black and the song kept playing yeah honestly i'm really on the fence about this one i'm not really sure what to think of it apparently the people at con loved this movie but that was back in 1969. So very different world to the one that we're living in right now. Yes and no. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's get into that. The theme of this movie is addressing the prejudices of mainstream society versus counterculture. Mm. We get to see a couple different countercultures. We get to see this little commune that just want to live off the land. It almost seemed like they wanted to do it so they prove they could. And their goal was just to grow food for themselves. That's all they really wanted to do. 
And they seemed relatively harmless. They had a theater troupe. They, no, I'm sorry. They had a mime troupe, but wasn't they weren't a mime troupe. No, they didn't mime. They But it was the mime stage. The kids, Anyways. Yeah. And then we met like a almost a good old boy Southern lawyer. That was Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. George. I want I keep wanting to say it's George Harrison because it's George Harrison. But what was this character's name? Hansen. George Hansen, thank you. And he was just kind of this southern lawyer who seemed very dissatisfied with the southern lawyer life and mm-hmm. wanted to be doing anything else it's like oh gosh i wish i was going to new orleans with you guys and they were like okay come on with us you got a helmet i sure do it's my football helmet can't wear my football helmet without my football sweater yeah he got decked out yeah he did and then at one point he made a comment two weeks ago i was down in mexico with my buddy he just seems dissatisfied with the life he's supposed to be having so He's a drunk. They meet him in jail where he's been put in the cooler for being drunk in public. And he was delightful. Till he was bludgeoned to death. Till, but, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, he was bludgeoned to death. It was really weird. That was really weird. I made the comment of, oh, it was a different world. And then you said, is it really? This movie is yet another example of people in the southeast portion of the United States being portrayed as just awful bigoted people who are violent to outsiders yeah the incident at the restaurant that preceded the bludgeoning was because they had long hair Mm -hmm. and it kind of branched out from there yeah they didn't like the motorcycles but that wasn't really the point of their harassment was that they were riding motorcycles they weren't outright calling them queer but they were kind of needling in those directions yeah they, oh, because they have long hair, they must be gay. And if they are gay, well, then that's a whole nother level right. of just badness and harassment. And I think that was the ramp that led up to the bludgeoning. So the three of them calmly and quietly and relatively respectfully leave the restaurant without getting any food and leave because they were being harassed and they didn't want it to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So they left. So they're camping on the side of the road that night. I don't remember. Did they even really talk about what happened? Not really. But as they were leaving that diner, a booth full of young women followed them outside and they were very admiring of their motorcycles and they wanted to get taken on a ride. And the men of the diner were standing in the window watching all of this happen. So, of course, the men, in order to, I guess reassure themselves of their masculinity and mastery over the women of their area. They went out into the woods and they hunted these guys down and Mm -hmm. attacked them. Yeah. The scene was dark. Because it was at night. Because it was at night. Also thematically dark, but literally it was dark. All of the three men were asleep, so there was not a lot of crying out. Nope. Billy woke up and like cried out some, but Wyatt didn't wake up and George never woke up. Nope. I honestly thought Wyatt was dead, because he didn't really move. Wyatt got off with just a few bruises. Yeah. But it was definitely the most, I don't want to say unexpected scene. It was unexpected. I was shocked that he died. I was not shocked that the men in the restaurant tracked them down and beat them. Mm -hmm. That was not surprising, because like you said, the men of the town needed to assert their dominance. A couple of times, one of them said, they're not going to reach the parish line. What really bothered me about that restaurant scene was that there were, what, like three booths full of people, one of them being the six girls. And so all three booths are openly and loudly talking about these three men. Yep. 
the girls are fawning all over them, talking about how cute they are. Oh, I like the one in the suspenders and all this stuff. Very like flirty, very complimentary, very loud. (laughs) But so were the two booths of men. They just like weren't hiding. They're murmuring. And that boggles my mind. I think that's a New Englander thing. Like us New Englanders, we are not more or less polite than people from the other parts of this country. We usually just do it under our breath. Mm -hmm. What's the saying that they have? People on the East Coast are, I think it's um, a dichotomy between polite and nice. Yeah, it's politely rude or rudely polite. Something like that. People on the East Coast, they'll be rude to your face. But they're actually the nicest people we ever meet. Yes. But people on the West Coast, they're polite to your face, but they're just awful people. That sounds like the Southern. Like they're polite to your face and nasty beneath the surface. And we're not that polite to your face, but we're generally nice people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just feels like every piece of media that I watch, it displays every Southern state as just the most hostile place you could ever want to go. Like, if you are not in the correct social strata, or if your skin color is the wrong shade, you will get attacked, and you will die. That is just terrifying. As somebody in the correct, in quotes, social strata, I am white, and I am middle class, and I'm straight. So I don't go out in the world feeling like that, that I'm not safe places. So seeing it depicted that anything... Any part of you that is not on this straight and narrow path is going to put you in danger out in the world. And that's terrifying. That is terrifying. Mm -hmm. And it's wild because the folks in the latter half of this movie, the Southerners, they're attacking Billy and Wyatt because they are long hair hippie types. And there's no other reason for them to be attacking them. And especially in the very last scene of the movie. Wyatt and Billy are just riding their motorcycles down the road. They're not riding dangerously. They're not riding terribly fast. Nope. They have no outward signs of intentions to cause problems. Yeah. And this truck, almost jokingly, the passenger's like, hey, look at them. I'm going to scare them. So he pulls his rifle out of the back window and waves it at Billy. And Billy just like, just flips him off. It's like he doesn't really care that much. And then the passenger shoots Billy. I don't think he meant to shoot him. I think Uh, he meant to scare him. I think he meant to fire the gun. I don't think he meant to hit Billy. I think he meant to shoot around him. Yeah, I don't think so. You think he actually meant to shoot him? Yeah. Wow. Two good old boys in their pickup truck, a couple of long-haired types. Yeah. Billy disrespected them by flipping them off, and why wouldn't they shoot him for that slight against their honor i don't know i'm not sure and then of course they had to turn around because if they killed one they have to kill the other wow at first when the passenger guy who had shot and said we have to turn around i assumed it was oh crap i shot a guy we need to get him help and then so they turn around and wyatt is racing off to get help so he's going at a much faster speed than he was going before and he passes the truck and they shoot him yeah And that's the last moment of the film. The passenger has to put his gun across the lap, Yep, more or less, of Of the driver. The driver. In order to shoot Wyatt, and they take him out. They do. And the visual of his exploding and on-fire bike, that's the last visual of the movie. So a vehicle on fire, exploding, etc., 
being the last image of the movie reminds me of Vanishing Point, which is one of the very first hiatus movies we ever watched. Oh, it has been a very long time. As I was watching Easy Rider, I kept thinking about Vanishing Point Mm -hmm. because they were made in roughly the same time frame. It's a very similar story, moving on a sort of vehicle from point A to point B and meeting people along the way. But Vanishing Point had such a better drive to it because the main character of Vanishing Point, he had a deadline he had to keep. And so him speeding through all of these different places made a modicum of sense. With Easy Rider, Wyatt and Billy, they had a bit of a windfall, financially speaking, because they smuggled some cocaine across the southern border. And so they decided, hey, let's go to Mardi Gras. So it was such a slow meander. Like it was an easy ride? Uh, Yeah. One of the things I was most unsure about going into this film was whether or not it would be able to hold my attention and keep me invested in these characters. And I don't believe it necessarily achieved that. Something that I'm noticing as we're talking about this movie so far is that we've only discussed the second half of the movie. I think the second half of the movie is more interesting than the first half in a sad way. That's when the bad things start to happen. The front half of the movie is all the nice things that happen to them. Right, because they're starting in California. Yeah. And the time that they spend in California where they replace the tire and they meet up with the Farmstead family. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, according to Wikipedia, the Farmstead family is in Arizona. So they meet the Farmstead family. They're super nice. They let them use their barn to swap out the back tire. And, and then they feed them. Yep. Then they get fed. Then they pick up the hippie hitchhiker and they go to the commune and have a nice time there. But as soon as they leave the simple country dwelling people and start going into actual civilization. Is Texas where they start getting into trouble? According to Wikipedia, they start getting into trouble in New Mexico. Really? Yeah. It's California, Arizona, and then things start going wrong in New Mexico. They do not get very far at all. Wow. Which, honestly, them getting arrested in New Mexico for parading without a permit because they just get caught up in the parade. Yeah, that scene confused me until they got arrested for illegal parade. Which is such Dang. a... They were arrested because they were drifters. Yes, like, they let's absolutely be real about were. This. They absolutely were. Cutting back a moment to your comment about the characters and the plot being able to hold you, the first half of the movie, I had trouble being held. Mm-hmm. Second half of the movie, no problem at all. Really? Even the LSD scene? Well, <laughs> okay. So the LSD scene, that was going to be my choice for my least favorite part of the movie. All right. Well, let's go into that later on in, okay. in the discussion here. All right. So we'll put a pin in we'll that. We'll put a pin in the LSD scene. Yeah. It really disappointed me, but it didn't surprise me that things started going downhill as soon as they got into a proper town. But it does seem like they really skipped over Texas. I feel like they could have gotten into a lot of trouble there. With good old boy types. But then again, a lot of Texas is just empty to begin with. Yeah, they did ride through lots of empty space. Mm. Lots of empty space. Did you get a good sense of where they were geographically over the course of the film? No, not even a little bit. I'm glad you said that because neither did I. I would have liked some kind of indicator about where they were. They didn't even tell us where they were going until the town where they met George. Mm -hmm. Uh... No, 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 no. The Drifter. They told the Drifter they were going to Mardi Gras. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was Hippie Hitchhiker. They were 
camping out for the night. Yeah. And that's where they mentioned that they were Nolans. going to Mardi Gras. We didn't hear their names spoken out loud, I think, until the brothel. Yeah, I think so. We had to look it up. I did like the dynamic between Wyatt and Billy. Yeah. They were two very different people. But at the same time, they worked very well together. They worked very well together. Wyatt, played by Peter Fonda, was quiet, level-headed. I would say more mainstream Mm. than Billy was. Billy was Dennis Hopper, and he was classic hippie. Long hair, fringe on his jacket, a necklace of teeth of some kind, like animal teeth, not human teeth. It looked like bone. A bandana, like across his forehead style bandana. He was high most of the time. Dennis Hopper in this movie was playing a sort of character that I think he would bring back in Apocalypse Now. When we meet him in the jungle in that movie, Uh and he's the photographer that is embedded with the people that Kurtz has gathered in that little commune of his. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just that when you get Dennis Hopper, you want a Dennis Hopper type, and he's playing the Dennis Hopper type here in his movie, because it is Dennis Hopper's movie. Going into this, I pretty much knew that it was Dennis Hopper's movie, as far as him being the director. I definitely didn't feel like there was a comprehensive screenplay, Oh, however. Yeah, there are three writing credits, Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Terry Southern. I feel like Terry Southern wrote an outline. And then when they had scenes where they actually had conversation between Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, they made it up as they went along. Therefore, they got writing credits. Would you like to be surprised? Yes. This movie received two Academy Award nominations, one for Best Supporting Actor for Jack Nicholson and one for Best Original Screenplay. (sighs) Okay, I agree with Jack Nicholson. He was, like I said before, delightful in this movie. Screenplay? Really? (laughs) I would love to see the screenplay that supposedly got the nomination. Right. I wouldn't say- Like 10 pages of it? (laughs) It definitely got the nomination, but I just- don't believe yeah. from what I saw in this movie. There was that- not a lot of dialogue, which is up our alley. I do not need a lot of dialogue to give credit for a good screenplay. Mm. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that when there was conversation, it was awkward and stilted, like people actually talk in real life. Yeah. Because people don't talk in real life like they do in the movies. We're awkward and we don't know what to say. And we have emotions that come into things and the emotions don't always make sense and we're messy people are messy that's the kind of conversations that were being had most of the conversations were around campfires messy is a good way to describe this movie there is an entire three paragraph section on the wikipedia page for this movie just for writing i let's see here's what it says Hopper and Fonda's first collaboration was in The Trip from 1967, written by Jack Nicholson, which had themes and characters similar to those of Easy Rider. Peter Fonda had become an icon of the counterculture in The Wild Angels from 1966, where he established a persona he would develop further in The Trip and Easy Rider. The Trip also popularized LSD, while Easy Rider went on to celebrate 60s culture, but does so stripped of its innocence. Author Katie Mills wrote that the trip is a waypoint along the metamorphosis of the Rebel Road story from a beat relic into its hippie reincarnation as Easy Rider, 
and connected Peter Fonda's character in those two films, along with his character in The Wild Angels, deviating from the formulaic biker persona and critiquing commodity-oriented filmmakers appropriating avant-garde film techniques. It was also a step in the transition from independent film into Hollywood's mainstream. And while The Trip was criticized as a faux-popularized underground film made by Hollywood insiders, Easy Rider interrogates the attitude that underground films must remain strictly segregated from Hollywood. Mills also wrote that the famous acid trip scene in Easy Rider clearly derives from their first tentative explorations as filmmakers in The Trip. So The Trip and The Wild Angels had been low-budget films released by American International Pictures and were both successful. When Fonda took Easy Rider to AIP, however, it was Hopper's first film as a director. They wanted to be able to replace him if the film went over budget, so Fonda took the film to Burt Schneider of Ray Burt Productions and Columbia Pictures instead. There's a lot of pre-established film history that, to me, puts this movie as a sort of quasi-trilogy. It, that does seem to be the case, that there is continuation. That kind of answers some questions for me about these characters. The story felt incomplete. It felt like there should be more before, and obviously there probably won't be more after because, <laughs> I mean, they both seem to be dead. Yeah. So it just seems an incomplete story. I appreciated the mention of transitioning from independent film and Hollywood mainstream being two completely separate things because the media world that we live in now is that big, huge mainstream actors will often go do indie films. It's like vacation for them. Like, oh, I'm going to go do like, okay, I did an Avengers movie and I made a whole bunch of money. Now I'm going to go do something I really want to do that's artistic and interesting. And I get to, you know, act. So it's a really common thing for actors to jump back and forth between corporate Hollywood and indie films. I think the best example of that is Jon Favreau, who was in all of the Iron Man movies. And I'm pretty sure those were his movies. Yeah, he's and, a big director too, yeah. And then he went and made Chef, which was all about a chef who was working in a big-time restaurant for high-profile cases and decided to instead go open himself a food truck and make the kind of small, <laughs> low-budget things that he wanted to make. Wow. A very... On the nose? A very heavily-veiled metaphor, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Yes. And I think media across the board is better for it. Now, jumping back into this Wikipedia page. When seeing a still of himself and Bruce Dern in The Wild Angels, Peter Fonda had the idea of a modern Western involving two bikers traveling around the country and eventually getting shot by hillbillies. Well, good start. Yep. He called Dennis Hopper, and the two decided to turn that into a movie, with Hopper directing, Fonda producing, and both starring and writing. They brought in screenwriter Terry Southern, who came up with the title Easy Rider, the film was mostly shot without a screenplay, with ad-libbed lines, and production started with only the outline and names of the protagonists. Thank you. I feel validated. Keeping the Western theme, Wyatt was named after Wyatt Earp and Billy after Billy the Kid. Oh, I love that. Didn't even pick up on that. Southern disputes that Hopper wrote most of the script, but in an interview published in 2016, he said, you know, if Den Hopper improvises a dozen lines and six of them survive the cutting room floor, he'll put in for a screenplay credit. Now, it would be almost impossible to exaggerate his contribution to the film, but by George, he manages to do it every time, which does not surprise me at all. 
If you get Dennis Hopper behind the camera, I feel like he's going to ad lib even if you don't want him to. Yeah, he does seem like one of those actors that kind of takes over. So according to Southern, Fonda was under contract to produce a motorcycle film with AIP, which Fonda had agreed to allow Hopper to direct. According to Southern, Fonda and Hopper didn't seek screenplay credit until after the first screenings of the film, which required Southern's agreement due to Writers Guild policies. Southern says he agreed out of a sense of camaraderie, and that Hopper later took credit for the entire script. So Southern wrote the movie, as much as it was written. I think Southern wrote what he could in order to, I guess, comply with Writers Guild policies. I'm assuming that you can't necessarily do a 100% ad-libbed film. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really not sure what the rules are there. What's crazy about this film is that it was made for under half a million dollars. Oh, I definitely believe that. The estimated budget for this was $360,000 to $400,000. Yep, that sounds about right. This movie was just really chill. How much of that budget was drugs? Well, a lot of the budget was housing, feeding, and moving the crew around. Of course, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. In fact, Peter Fonda said that on top of the estimated budget of filming that he personally paid for a lot of that travel lodging and feeding the crew. People would just, I guess, take his credit cards and go pay for things that they needed to get paid for. His his bank account was the petty cash fund. So that's not included in the budget? Nope. Okay. Now, filming budget being what it was, Laszlo Kovacs said that an additional $1 million, about three times the budget for shooting the rest of the film, was spent just with licensing music. Oh, yeah, the music. We haven't even talked about the music. Does not surprise me. The music was fantastic, but not cheap. We mentioned back when we were talking about the bodyguard, the idea of a soundtrack being better than a movie. Mm-hmm. Now, we decided that with the bodyguard, that that film is good even without the soundtrack to lean on. Yes. I think that Easy Rider needed the soundtrack than it had. Absolutely. The soundtrack absolutely elevated this movie a couple of notches. The song Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf alone. When that song came on at the perfect time is when they kind of took off on their journey. That's when I knew. I'm like, okay, this is the perfect start to a motorcycle journey movie. This Mm -hmm. is how you start that kind of movie. So it really gave me a sense of optimism about how the movie was going to go, which was, by the way, immediately dashed with the editing. Yeah. It was so weird. I want to get into the editing when we talk about least favorite things. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. That was my least favorite thing. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the critical reception of this movie? I do. So let's start with box office because we like to talk about money. So the film opened July 14th, 1969, about a week after 4th of July, and grossed a first week take of $40,422. It grossed even more the following week, just about the same amount. In its 14th week of release, it was the number one film at the U.S. box office and remained there for three weeks. It was the fourth highest grossing film of 1969, with a worldwide gross of $60 million. (gasps) What?! 40, what? 41.7 million of that was domestic. Oh my goodness. Americans loved this movie. It seems crazy nowadays to have a movie 
that's not an absolute top tier blockbuster stay at number one. Most movies nowadays, to even be declared successful in any measure, have to have like this amazingly stellar first weekend, first weekend. And then most movies taper off right after that. Mm. And then you're done. Unless you are a crazy blockbuster, then you can hang on for a few weeks until the next big thing comes along. So that is bonkers. Yep. I mentioned beforehand that this movie got two Academy Award nominations, but they brought this movie to Cannes. And while it was nominated for the Palme d'Or, Dennis Hopper won the Best First Work Award from the Cannes Film Festival. Okay, I can see that. I can absolutely see him winning for this being his first movie that he directed as mm -hmm. a director. I think it was his okay. first directing role. I can check on that. Though. Yeah, I agree with that award. So according to IMDb, this was Dennis Hopper's directorial debut. Okay. According to IMDb, over Dennis Hopper's career, he has directed nine projects. Two of them were shorts in 2000 and 2008, but the rest of them, he was either directly credited as the director or for one, he put his name in as Alan Smithy, which is the Hollywood catch-all Oh, okay. Name. It's when you, the John Doe of Hollywood. When you direct something, but you don't necessarily want to have your name connected to it. Oh, okay. That okay. sort of thing. But getting back to Easy Rider, it has a few more awards, recognitions for Jack Nicholson in the Laurel Awards, where he got top male supporting performance. He also got best supporting actor from the National Society of Film Critics and best supporting actor from the New York Film Critics Circle Awards. So people especially loved Jack Nicholson in this movie. In fact, in 1998, Easy Rider was added to the United States National Film Registry, having been deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It definitely does feel culturally significant, even out of context, because I do think we are watching this movie drastically out of context. Mm -hmm. Neither of us were alive in the 60s. Nope. So we don't know what culture was like. But this movie is very comparable to our current culture now. If you deviate from what society says is okay, bad things happen to you. And those things vary depending on where you are. That has never changed. It's just the details yeah. have changed. The treatment has stayed the same, but the oppressed community has changed. Has, and it, again, it depends on where you are. Mm -hmm. Like in some places, it's totally fine to be queer and out and wide open about that and no one's going to care it's just different now but there's always going to be things details about people that other people find insufferable mm -hmm. and are willing to be violent about it so moving into critical reception the film received mostly positive reviews from critics vincent canby of the new york times called it pretty but lowercase cinema despite the uppercase pious statement about our society which is sick he was mildly impressed by the photography, rock score, and Nicholson's performance. Penelope Gilliatt in The New Yorker said that it speaks tersely and aptly for this American age that is both the best of times and the worst of times. Roger Ebert added Easy Rider to his great movies list in 2004. Easy Rider holds a certified fresh 83% rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 54 reviews. The site's consensus states edgy and seminal, Easy Rider encapsulates the dreams, hopes, and hopelessness of 1960s counterculture. The end of the movie is what makes this movie for me. Mm. 
if you had grabbed me at the 45 minute mark halfway through this movie and told me all that stuff, I would have been like, mm, no, I don't really agree. But the second half of the movie and especially the end scene really make the first half more meaningful and at the same time more foreign and like nostalgic. Yeah. Like, oh, can't we just go back to the time where we met this commune of people and ate good food and went swimming with some lovely ladies? Can't we just go back and do that <laughs> instead of being harassed and murdered on the road? Even though that second half of the movie is unpleasant to experience and to think about, that's the part that like means something, that makes you think. Let's move into our most favorite, least favorite things. Yes. Do you have a favorite part of this movie? My favorite part of this movie is Jack Nicholson. It's hard to argue with that. Yeah, his acting was spot on. It was delightful. My favorite part about his acting is that it's what I saw under the surface of his character in The Shining. Mm. In The Shining, like you can see that he could be a joyful person, but he's held back by the demons and stuff. And you can tell that it's holding him back. But there's something in there that can be um, happy and enjoy life. And perfect? No. George from this movie still had plenty of problems. But there was just something bright about him. I'm glad I got to see Jack Nicholson play that. Because he does it really, really well. Yeah. And he was not the first companion that Wyatt and Billy had. Their first companion was the Drifter. The Drifter made me nervous mm. when he was with them. He was very tight-lipped. Yeah, and I kept feeling like, when is he going to go away? Kind of gave you uh, Manson vibes. Oh, uh, yes, definitely Manson vibes. I'm like, okay, something bad is going to happen, I feel like. And I was just waiting for something bad to happen with him. Nothing ever did. He's the one that took them to the commune. They had a good meal, a good swim, and said goodbye. But George was definitely the more like chill and interesting of the companions mm. that they had along the way. He was willing to have conversations with them. He was willing to try pot. And I loved that he wasn't afraid. He didn't feel awkward about not knowing, first of all, what it was or what it was going to do to him or how to use it. I really appreciate it. He was so open. I yeah. liked it. He was good. He was an excellent addition to the cast of this movie. Yes. For sure. And his death was just weird, though. That it, I guess that's like the opposite side of it. What I didn't like about his character is that his death was weird and underemphasized. Yeah. A man died. And they went through his wallet, not to like steal all his stuff, but kind of to find out like who to contact or something. Like, oh, should we return his things to his family kind of thing. They took the business card for the excellent brothel. And that was it. Yep. Did they report his death to anybody? I think Did they, they just, do anything? I think they just left him. I think him. they just left him wrapped in the uh, sleeping bag. Weird. Weird. Hey, speaking of that scene, did you catch, as they were leaving the beating scene, before they got to the brothel, there was a quick flash of side of the road burning something on the side of the road. I no. thought it was his body, first of all. I assumed it was his body. Until we got to the end of the movie. And it was Wyatt's motorcycle. Mm. It was a quick flash forward to Wyatt's own death. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Which was out of place. The image was out of place. And then the connection, like foreshadowing his, his death in a couple of days, yeah. was out of place as well. What was your favorite part? Honestly, I liked all of the shots of them riding motorcycles. I think the 
way that they set it up where it was just the two of them on the road and they had a chase vehicle that was filming. But I think they did a really good job of showing off the landscape as mm. they moved along the southwest parts of the United States. They did. And rode through all of these different vistas. I think they did a really good job of showcasing what it's like to be out on the road just cruising. Yeah, there was a couple shots where they were being very relaxed on their bikes because motorcycle riding is a four-limb job. But if you're cruising on the highway, you no longer need all four limbs. Mm -hmm. You just need one. As long as you've got the throttle turned, if you've got any sort of uh, cruise control on that bike, you don't even need your hands. Yeah. There was one point where Wyatt had his left leg up over the gas tank. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they were just chilling. It gave a real sense of that open road freedom that I think a lot of people associate with this movie. More so than any other aspect of this film, I think people remember and think mostly of the motorcycle riding scenes of just Fonda and Hopper on those bikes on the open road, some rock song playing in the background. Like that opening scene with Steppenwolf playing, easily my favorite part of this film because it just feels iconic. Mm -hmm. and has proved to be iconic over the years. And that has stood the test of time. Absolutely. Even 53 years later, it still feels iconic mm -hmm. because that's what iconic really means is that it's always going to feel that way. Speaking of feelings, you mentioned <laughs> earlier that your least favorite part of this film is the LSD trip. Yeah, it is. And... I hesitate to call it my least favorite because it was what it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was bad filmmaking in any way. It's supposed to be a disorienting, confusing scene. It's a classic LSD scene. It's the sort of thing you get when you do drug scenes in general. It's my least favorite because it did what it was supposed to do and it made me feel uncomfortable. Scenes like this... The biggest reason they make me feel uncomfortable is that they have no structure to them and you don't know when it's going to end. Mm. So I wish they would have a timer in the corner. <laughs> Just tell me how long it's left. If yeah. it's going to be a five minute acid trip scene, fine. Tell me it's going to be five minutes so that I know where we are in the scene. And I will sit through it. I sat through this one and I didn't hate the experience. It made me uncomfortable, but it did. It made me think a lot. And I was paying attention to the imagery and the sounds that were on the screen. And they expressed things about the characters, but there's no through line to it. So there's no natural conclusion. And I had no idea how long it was going to go on. That's the part that I really don't like about trip scenes. I know that this movie has a reputation or an understanding that the drugs were real. Is this LSD trip scene real? I think it was probably the closest thing that Dennis Hopper and the film's editor, Don Camburn, could get to an actual trip. Okay. I have a feeling that between the two of them, they had probably experienced their own types of trips. And so mm -hmm. they had all of this footage and tried to cut it together. Now, when you asked, was this trip real? I think what you're asking is, were the people on film tripping at the time? Yes. And... I want to say yes, because while I'm sure you can act the same way that they acted. It felt very authentic. Yeah. 
The part that stood out to me, not Mary. I don't know the other one's name. I want to say her name was Karen. Karen? That sounds right. She had a rough time. Yeah. She was crying, weeping the whole time. She was dying. She's dead. Let me out of here. She did not have a good time. Not at all. And as far as audio goes, she dominated the audio. Absolutely. And then Mary seemed to also not have a fantastic time, but she was very quiet about it. Like, I don't think we heard her voice, like, at all. But she seemed to be being comforted by Wyatt at one point, like, held like a baby. And then Wyatt, I don't know, he seemed to come face to face with his inner demons. And then Billy, I have no idea what he was doing. He was kind of not there. Seriously, Karen dominated that scene with her wailing. Yeah. It just sounded awful. She did not have a good time. I think that also kind of dragged down my mm, enjoyment. Mm. I don't think I'm ever going to enjoy a scene like that, but is that she just made it sound so sad. Yeah. How about you? Honestly, my least favorite part of this movie was the editing. Yeah, it was bad. Aside from the disjointed and very disorienting editing in the acid scene, the editing in other parts of the movie seemed very questionable. Yeah. There were transition shots where they would cut back and forth between the current shot and the next shot two or three times uh-huh. as if they were thinking, oh, if we swap back and forth really fast, I guess it'll look like a dissolve and then we'll fool everybody into thinking <laughs> that we dissolved from one shot to the other, which no, that's not exactly yeah, what happened. Yeah, no, that's not how that works. There... Also, it wasn't fast enough to do that to like trick our brains into anything. It was yeah. just bad. There was a series of shots very early in the movie where Peter Fonda takes off his watch and drops it on the ground. And the shots consist of close-ups, quick zooms, quick pullbacks, just nonsensical styles of editing mm-hmm. all throughout this film that made the regular scenes lull me into a sense of security. And then we would have a transition and it would pull me right back out of it. Yeah. With that watch scene, it was a real shame because that's what I noticed in the scene instead of what was happening and what it meant the symbolism there i'm sure there was a lot of symbolism to him taking off his watch and leaving it behind but we didn't really get to enjoy that because there was all these like smash cuts in it it was weird very distracting and then those transitions were just bonkers i don't know what they were going for and they didn't do it all the time so i'm reading in the post-production section on the wikipedia page that says that easy writers style the jump cuts time shifts flash forwards flashbacks Jerky handheld cameras, fractured narrative, and improvised acting can be seen as a cinematic transition of the psychedelic experience. Peter Biskind, author of Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, wrote, LSD did create a frame of mind that fractured experience and that LSD experience had an effect on films like Easy Rider. So I guess in the long run, what I'm saying is that I probably would not enjoy LSD. No. (laughs) Based on this movie alone, like, no thank you. Yeah. Rather not. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I thought the editing for the LSD trip was fine. I don't think it was anything stellar. Again, it was what it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be disjointed, confusing, and disturbing even. That scene was what it was supposed to be, which is why I didn't like it. But the rest of the movie didn't do that. The rest of the movie didn't communicate to me a sense of disjointed, LSD-esque experiences. The rest of the movie felt pretty straightforward 
Yeah, I think if they were going for something for the movie, like having that flash of why it's destroyed bike like a half an hour earlier, that felt out of place because it was the only time something like that happened. Unless it happened other times and I missed it. But frankly, I'm pretty good at noticing things in movies because I've been noticing them minute by minute for so long. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty good at this now. So I don't think I missed other little premonition scenes and time travel. I don't think it was there. I'm reading here and it says that the exact running time of the original rough cut is unclear. It could have been anywhere from four to five hours. Scenes that were cut from that original rough cut included showing Wyatt and Billy as stunt performers in a show, getting into biker fights, picking up women at a drive-in, being pulled over by police, encountering a black motorcycle gang, 10 additional minutes of the volatile cafe scene. Like, there was a lot. that was uncomfortable. There was a lot that they shot for this that just did not make it to the final cut. Am I glad that it's only 95 minutes? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I would not have done well with a four or five hour version of this movie, I think. No, we wouldn't have watched it. Definitely not. We would absolutely not have watched it. We would have chosen a different movie for Dennis Hopper. Mm -hmm. All right, so final thoughts. I acknowledge that there is great cultural significance of this movie. I was going to say those exact words. But (laughs) I didn't enjoy it. Same. I recognize its cultural significance. Exactly what you said. I'm not sorry that we watched it. I think that it is an important movie to watch, but enjoyed it is a strong word. Mm. I didn't hate it. I think I was very middle of the road about it. But what tips me onto the positive side is that it does share a cultural message that is unfortunately timeless. Yeah. So anybody at any time in the history of the United States can sit down and watch this movie and go, ooh, yeah, yeah. People get treated like that for dumb reasons. And it is very unfortunate that it's still such a timeless, I guess, depiction, Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I will never begrudge someone wanting to watch this movie. This is not one that I will send people away from. No, I won't poo-poo it to anybody. But I'm not going to suggest it as something for a group to watch. If someone's like, hey, does anybody have any good movie recommendations? I'm not going to pop up I'm and be like, pop up oh, let's watch, watch Easy, Easy Rider. Rider. No, that's we not going to be watched, A couple weeks ago, we watched an amazing movie that we have been recommending to like everybody we come across. Yeah. Like, oh, have you seen this movie? Well, you should watch it. Yeah, this is not one this of those. This isn't that so. Well, listeners, thank you so much for spending some time with us for this hiatus episode talking about 1969's Easy Rider. In our next episode, we will be jumping forward a few decades to highlight Gene Triplehorn in 1998's Sliding Doors. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham, produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our website is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. Like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute. And support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.